0: Hello, I'm Ann Mossop, Sydney Writers Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program.
1: Welcome to the Sydney Writers Festival 2022. Um, this session is called uh, Where Angels Fear to Tread. Um, I'm not sure what that makes anyone on the panel. Uh, but not angels, apparently. Um, My name's Eric Jensen. I'm the founding editor of the Saturday Paper and editor-in-chief of Schwartz Media. Um, Before I start, I want to acknowledge that we're meeting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, and to pay my respects to Elders and to other First Nations people who might be in the room. I'll start at the end of this panel uh, by introducing Kate McClymont, uh, who I'm sure many of you know. She is, of course, an investigative journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald, um, an eight-time Walkley winner, including the Gold Walkley for her coverage of the Bulldogs' salary cap, rorting. Nine, um,
0: nine now.
1: Nine. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> this will have to be updated. <laughs> they gave her one out the back. Uh, my notes were, were up to date when I started. Um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say in the, in the past decade or so, there's half of the things that ICAC Uh, have been the result of your reporting. Certainly, um, it's very unlikely that Eddie Obeid or Ian Macdonald or others would be in prison today if it wasn't for Kate McClymont. Um, uh, I I do remember when I used to work with you, someone saying that, you you live down in the sewer, but you make it seem so good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can I just quickly interrupt to say that when Eric was at The Herald, um, I made him go and doorstop Ron Medich the day after the murder. Like, Michael McGurk hadn't even been dead for 12 hours. And Eric came back and said, oh, I did what you said. And I said, oh, What did you ask him? And Eric said, I said, So, Ron, did you do it? <laughs> I said, Could you not be a bit more subtle?
1: <laughs> this, this panel's going to take the same format, just direct <laughs> questions. <laughs> um, on that very point, I should say, yes, Kate's faced more defamation actions than probably any of us could comprehend, and her latest book is about the killing of Michael McGurk, and it's called Dead Man Walking. Unless you've written a book since I did not. Okay. <laughs> um, Chris Masters, author and journalist. <clears throat> probably best known as the longest-serving reporter on Four Corners, where you won the Gold Oakley for your reporting on the Sinking of the Rainbow Warrior, and also uh, your famous episode of that show, The Moonlight State, led to the Fitzgerald Inquiry into corruption in Joe Bielke-Peterson's Queensland. And must be one of the gold standards for reporting and reporting outcomes in the country. And of course, and that's what this panel is about, that led to defamation actions that lasted for 13 years. Um, which is extraordinary. You're the author also of also five books, including Jonestown and No Frontline, Australia's Special Forces at War in Afghanistan. Which is <laughs> ongoing, and so we, we won't talk about it uh, in too much depth. That's part of the seven-second delay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hannah Marshall is the lawyer on the panel. APPLAUSE uh, And I'm I'm compelled to say one of the good ones, and we'll we'll largely be talking about the bad ones today. Um, Hannah is a partner at Mark Lawyers in Sydney. Uh, You work on all aspects of media law, really, from defamation to advertising to uh, competition. Um, You've consulted the government on defamation law reform, though we don't hold you personally responsible. Uh, And you've been involved in the formulation of the new public interest defence which we might talk about a bit, uh, and among your clients are several independent news publishers. Welcome, Hannah. Welcome, panel. So this, this is a session about defamation law, obviously, and I have to say, as an editor, there's nothing in the country that stands more firmly between the public and the truth than our Defamation Act. So over the next hour, I hope that we will explain why that is and. What can be done to change it? As I mentioned before, there are some current proceedings underway, so we, uh, when we take questions at the end, obviously we won't take questions on specific cases. Um, I did have a good first question uh, ready to go, but then the McLaughlin decision came down, and I feel like all of us just want to ask Kate McClymont uh, your take on, uh, on McLaughlin's decision not to continue suing you.
0: Great. (laughs) And, um, look, as Chris will know, it rarely turns out like this. And I just think this is an extraordinary case in some ways because Craig McLaughlin got to present his entire case and then on the very day our witnesses were due to give evidence he pulled the pin and by discontinuing, and it was it was interesting in court because his lawyer stood up and said, um, yes, we would uh, just like to file a, a notice of, um, you know, we're not continuing. And our lawyer said, abandoning, I think is the word you're using. And in some ways, it's it is a relief because by doing that, he has to pay our costs. And often in cases when a settlement is reached, both sides say, okay, we'll walk away, each pay our own costs. And the costs are extraordinary. In this case, the Herald's costs were about 1.1 million. The ABC's costs were the same. And I would imagine that Craig McLaughlin has to pay his costs as well. So in a while, it's fantastic. It just means that those women didn't get to, you know, have their say. And we had 11 women all coming forward to, to give evidence about, you know, in various parts, um, indecent assault, harassment, indecent exposure, sexual assault. And that's all been left you know, pretty much up in the open. And at first, when we wrote the story, Craig McLaughlin said, oh, look, it was just because. It was just sexual hijinks on Rocky Horror Show. So our 11 witnesses were uh, Dr. Blake, City Homicide, Neighbours and Rocky Horror. And it just surprises me that um, he brought the case in the first place because, as many of you might know, He was criminally charged in Victoria, but just in relation to um, some assaults that had happened in Victoria, and he was acquitted. And the reason he was acquitted was because the laws, as they stood at the time of the behaviour, were different to now. So the judge had to apply the applicable standard. But she said, I find Craig McLaughlin to be an unreliable witness, and the four women who've given evidence, I find them to be honest and brave. Now, you think, having read that, you would think, OK, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. Well, I mean, you would. And to think that he, um, he kept going. Anyway, look, I, I'm, I'm thrilled.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's the one speck of good news on this panel. The rest is going to be fairly depressing. I apologise. Um, on that note, Chris... What does it feel like when you do get a writ, when when it comes through, and you realise that you're going to have to spend huge sums of money and enormous amounts of time defending reporting that you've done?
2: The worst thing about uh, the defamation laws in Australia is that that the self-censorship that it generates. You know, it is so frightening, so intimidating. You know, I've covered a lot of wars, but I can say. Genuinely, I do suffer post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's not from being shot at or, 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 you know, or seeing people blown to bits. It's because I remember that moment when I went out to pick up the paper on a Sunday morning and I, a process server was waiting for me. It kind of ruined not only my day, but the next um, 10 years. So every time I go out to answer the mail or something, I look around for the process server. That's 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 my world.
1: Kate, do you feel the same way when when you get what, what would now be an email, but it, you know a demands notice, concerns yes. notice?
0: And the reason you feel sick is that you know how much work and effort, and it means that you can't do the journalism that you are doing because you have to spend months in court preparing, handing over all your documents. It's just an absolutely sickening process. But also, you know, Chris is right about self-censorship. There are so many stories that um, we can't do because say people come to you and say, a well-known person um, has sexually assaulted me. You automatically say, "I, I can't do that. Unless there is a pattern of behaviour and you have multiple witnesses, you just can't because in every story I do now, I think to myself, how am I going to prove that in court? Who is going to come forward and be a witness? Because it's all very well to have anonymous witnesses, but unless you can get a guarantee from them that if you are sued, they will come forward... And you look at, you know, what happened to the women in the Craig McLaughlin case, and people would think absolutely twice about being sources for stories when they think, look what's happened to these people. They've been um, criticised, harassed, their, you know, reputations have been trashed. Why would anyone want to help get a story to air? Hannah, before
1: we go further, we should talk about why the defamation laws exist in Australia, the, the kind of the positive version of why we have a defamation act <laughs> and what it's meant to do?
3: <laughs> um, look, at its heart, defamation law is meant to strike a balance between two competing interests. On the one hand, you've got a, a personal right to reputation and on the other hand, you've got the more um, broad-up public interest in freedom of communication. And so any defamation law has to find a, a point to to balance between those two things. And what we see in Australian law is that the balance is very heavily tipped in favour um, of the plaintiffs. And so that's what makes Australia such a plaintiff-friendly jurisdiction and why people commonly speak about us as being the defamation capital of the world. What a horrible thing to have won. Um, So that's kind of the nexus of it. The the way that happens, um, there's two things. Chris and Kate have spoken about kind of just the burden of being... a a defendant in a defamation case, the time, the expense, the stress. um, That's kind of the the process as a whole. The technical aspects of the law as well uh, are tailored at the moment in such a way that they also heavily favour the plaintiffs. One example is the the truth defence. So everybody probably has some sense that truth is a defence to defamation. In a defamation case, the plaintiff has to plead, um, first of all, that the publication itself which gave rise to the defamation. But then they have to say, what is the defamatory meaning of that? So someone publishes a story that says, um, there's CCTV of, a, of Hannah walking out of a bakery with a loaf of bread in her bag, which she didn't pay for. That's the publication. The, the imputation might be, Hannah's a thief. Um, and so you see there's a difference between the words and the imputation. The truth defence ties to the imputation. So you have to prove the imputation rather than just the truth of of the words. What that means is that the plaintiff gets to choose what is the truth that must be proven. And so what we've seen in some recent cases is the plaintiffs pleading imputations of guilt out of investigative pieces like Ben Roberts-Smith, like the Chow Chow Chak-Wing case. They plead imputations of guilt, which means that the press have no option but to prove guilt. It's not enough to say we've got all of these um, reasons for having reasonable suspicion. That's not good enough. That won't give you a a solid defence. And in fact, in the Chow Chak Wing case, that was thrown out completely as a a possible defence. So that's just one of the ways that um, that the technical side of our defamation laws is is stifling the journalistic process and and it's kind of favouring, and the strategic upsides are all in the hands of the plaintiff.
1: Chris, you've been sued over many decades. In a really, when I got the notes for this, I thought. Chris, you've been sued over many decades. It's
0: such an unpleasant panel. It really, when I got
1: the notes for this, I thought. Do people want to hear about the literal worst bit of our jobs for an hour? The thing that makes us feel sick and occupies much more of our time than it should and is always, always horrible. Um, apparently you do. There's many people here. They seem, they seem to be enjoying themselves. Chris, um, the last decade or so, defamation has changed, I think. The, the, um, the likelihood of things being brought as actions has has shifted um, the the way in which it occupies time has shifted. Have, have you noticed that? And and do you have any sort of view on why that is? Why why we once could publish with a reasonable assumption that people wouldn't bring an action, and now people who you would have thought would never bring an action do?
2: Well, I, I think they've they've obviously been tempted by m- many of the outcomes that you know, been terrifying for us. Although I have to say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Adele Ferguson was just injuncted. I was injuncted. I thought, this is deja vu, you know, because uh, I remember when, when that happened. To me it was 1984, and that's an important year, and I'll come to it. The uh, consequence of, of me being injuncted by Jeffrey Edelston the the doctor the controversial doctor was Who's now
1: the, dead so say what yeah, you like yeah. that's the only other good well, defense I, I is death i mean i have been
2: able to for a while because we, as it turned out we did we did win that matter he'd he'd complained that i'd given him a verbal contract you know and of course the onus of proof fell to me to prove that a verbal contract didn't exist which is which is a high bar to climb over uh, but as it happened, you know, liars tend to go too far and he nominated a time and a date when I'd gone out to see him and his wife gave the same evidence. They said I arrived wearing a brown suit. Well, you know, when have you seen me in a brown <laughs> suit? Never. <Can't laughs> no. And uh, anyway, uh, but naively, I pulled my little diary out of my bag and said to our lawyers, um, well, look, I, I was playing tennis on that day. So, you know, obviously wasn't with him and they got excited and the the uh, diary was introduced to court, and all of the witnesses who remembered my pathetic backhand turned <laughs> up, and and, uh, and of course uh, you know he lost the case. The outcome for me was that a couple of days later, the cops come through the door and, and seize my diary, the 1984, the era of the thought police, and uh, I uh, that that again uh, changed my life phenomenally because. Uh, I became so used to, to dealing with this sort of stuff that I feel like I do live in an oppressive state where I cannot fill out a diary, you know. I won't keep a diary. I'll be careful if I did about what I wrote in it. I be, I'm careful like you are about what I write in my notebooks. I don't put my so, so, any source's name or...
0: You taught or, me that.
2: ..phone number. I, I use a, the post-it system where you, you put the post-it in and you write the number on that and then you have some kind of code and then you strip it all out later on. I, mean... I
0: had um I had my notebooks um I had to hand them over when I was being sued by Eddie Obeid and what I had written in my notebooks about other stories ended up Eddie reading them out in Parliament. And he didn't quite realise that journalists don't just work on one thing, they work on other things. My other story that I was working on at the time was who owns the brothels of Sydney. (laughs) So Eddie somehow thought that I was attributing Brett's boy's brothels (laughs) to visits. And he said, can you imagine? She's making all these allegations. I thought, I'm doing a different story. But, and you're not allowed, the... You know, handing those diaries over for court is meant to be for one thing, and then to find Eddie Obeid reading them out in Parliament is...
1: Which is one yeah. of only, I think, two times that Eddie Obeid spoke in his entire career in Parliament, quite honestly. <laughs> um.
2: But the stories we were doing were, were very important. You know, you think about the Moonlight State, and uh, you said a lot of people have said, and judges have said to me, this is the kind of journalism we want from you. And I say, well, why do you make it so damned hard for us then? You know, think about the enormous bar you have to climb over if you set out to prove that Queensland police force is corrupt and it's it's corruption is being facilitated by a corrupt government. Um, um, They've got absolutely all the cards. We've, we've got no powers. We don't have the power of law enforcement to compel testimony. We can't f- find evidence in the way that they can. But for all that, we managed to tell an, a very, very important story, and clearly in the public interest, no doubt about that. But, but the cost is 13 years of defamation, which, frankly, it... it, it Killed my type of journalism. I thought I, I did not become a journalist to become a professional witness and a, a defendant, and it's it's odd that you know some of the best stories we do are the most punished.
1: Hannah, you were talking a little bit about the balance that's was trying to be struck by the Defamation Act. How often do you think the Act is used to correct bad reporting and how often is it used for reputation management?
3: That's a great question. I think the pattern of late has been concerningly towards very powerful, well-resourced plaintiffs using defamation proceedings to silence criticism. Um, And I think particularly in in that kind of area, the, the actions by politicians, my goodness, you know, once upon a time, you used to think about politicians needing to just kind of have a relatively thick skin. Um, One of our other defences called qualified privilege is meant to largely apply and preserve communications about political matters, even if they're not exactly right. Um, But then more recently, you know, with Peter Dutton and Christian Porter, we're seeing this kind of influx of big cases, which stem a lot from just kind of a whiff of criticism. And you know, th- that to me is is deeply troubling. You know, I think in the area of politics, discussion should be very free. And, um, you know, even more so perhaps in the broader context of investigative journalism, you know, there does need to be latitude to make mistakes. That's what robust public debate requires. And, um, you know, and this is going slightly off your question. No, no, a no I, I, it's a, a really um,
1: interesting point about change in who sues for defamation. Yeah. As the editor of the Saturday paper, the single largest class of person who I get concerns notices from are sitting politicians, and of any group of people that we've paid damages or settlements to, I've given more money to the Liberal Party than I ever thought I would in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and five or ten years ago, and you know, Kate and Chris, I'm sure you can talk to this, you just would not expect to be sued by a sitting politician, partly because very often when they do sue you, it, it turns out very badly for them, but also because there's this assumption that they have a, um, you know, a reasonable public office in which to defend their reputation and should use their office to defend it. Obviously, i be it suing you, Kate, is a kind of exception and probably a traumatic <laughs> but, one, but you know. I, know
0: but I think what you're saying is interesting, and also there's another interesting phenomenon in that people you know put in concerns notices saying we're going to sue, and often the major companies will say, here's $10,000, $20,000, because that's the cost of one day of a barrister, one day. So you do think that people are taking, I'm not taking advantage, but sometimes it makes commercial sense just to give people money to go away. And as a journalist, that makes my blood boil, but I can understand... Why? And it's also things like, um, I know Chris can't talk about the Ben Robert Smith case, but it doesn't stop me. Um, (laughs) No, but it's just things like, because I work um, for the the mastheads that are being sued, that case so far is, for us, in legal bills, is in excess of $10 million. It is enormous. So the thing is, you get a sense that there is slight anxiety or, or, or sorry, I should say um, the risk appetite to do other, you know, good journalism can be damaged by worrying that about the legal budget is completely <laughs> out of control. And, and the thing is, is that we don't know how that's going to go. Um, but if, if we do lose, we have to pay a similar amount for Ben Robert smiths um, Legal fees as well. So it's really high stakes. But just one thing I'd like to observe is that sometimes you think, um, why would you do this to yourself? Okay, even if Ben Robert Smith does win, the damage to his reputation along the way has been pretty bad, <laughs> I would imagine. And I can remember um, years ago covering a John Marsden defamation trial which went for a year, and he won. He didn't get many damages. But the thing is, most people forget the original allegation. It's only they are reminded of it day after day after day when you take a defamation action. So sometimes it's not such a good idea. And the costs
2: become leverage in themselves because... uh, And that's what it... I, I think you know about the matters that actually end up going to court, but there are so many other matters that don't, and and economic principles outweigh editorial principles, and I've been in this situation, I'll bet you, you have, I know you have, where you think, well, we can win this matter for sure, but we'll have to fight it, and we'll have to produce evidence, and it'll be five weeks in court, well, that's, what, how much is that, over $500,000? It's much easier to settle for $20,000, 30000 $100,000, which really, you know, rankles with us. But um, that's the way it is. When you're going in to report a story,
1: Chris, and Kate was sort of hinting at this before, what do you end up doing to prepare the story before you publish, basically with the assumption that you're going to go to court?
2: Well, I, I, I know that I'm not just working for the public, I wish I was. You know, I think our first loyalty should be to the public, and and I used to think at the very beginning we should be able to give them a hundred percent of our efforts. But um, you you're actually working. You learn to. I don't think we have to become lawyers, but you have to know a lot about what you can say and what you can't say, and you learn all the weasel words, etc. So I uh, I would bank this massive weight of research that was really designed to defend a matter before the court, much more so than it was to tell an important story. And, Kate,
1: does that change the stories that you choose to do? Are there are there categories of story where you just go, this is probably important, certainly true, but it's just not worth reporting it? Does it have a disfiguring effect on the news that we well, actually get?
0: Look, okay, it, it more depends on what you've got to back it up um, but it, and it's interesting um, one story that I did and that this was on Michael Williamson the former head of the Health Services Union and Craig Thompson so I was told that they had um, American acts oh, sorry American Express cards that were given to them by the the person who had the printing contract for the health services union. And so the printing contract was enormous, like so much bigger than any other union. But in return, they could run up whatever things they liked on their Amex card. So I got somebody in the fraud department of Amex to check and they said, yep, these are the cards. And I said, can you get me any documentation? And they went, no, no. All, they, all it is is that they've put themselves down as the brother-in-laws of the printer. So I'm about to write this this story with all, all the other allegations as well. And I can remember going into a meeting with the lawyers, the executive editor, the editor, and they're saying, so what exactly have you got? What documents have you got? I said, nothing. I said, but you are going to have to trust me on this. My source is impeccable. And I just remember one of them going, Oh, this is a two million dollar lawsuit at least. And the other one went, Go for it. Mm. And the thing is, you know, I like you very <laughs> coy
1: about what they spent the money on, Kate. I think we should be clear. Oh,
0: well, yeah. No, that no, <laughs> the, the brothels were a different. That was crazy. That was That was, okay, other. That was his other. That was his other <laughs> that was a different card. Guard. That was his other card. He had a but big thing, wallet. The thing okay. is, and like when you publish these stories, you feel absolutely sick. Like, you don't feel any sense of joy or anticipation. You just feel stressed and ill. And have I... And Chris would be the same. Have I got it right? Is everything OK? And by the time we got to 5 o'clock the next day and there was no concerns notice, you just think, yes. And guess what? Michael Williamson went to jail. So, yeah, it was... um
2: Eric... Um... I have uh, I like the lawyers approach the lawyers off the rank approach to taking cases. You know, you you're not you shouldn't be thinking, will this win me an award or will this be an easy ride? You think, what is the most important story that I can do right now? Because we we ha- have an unusual privilege in journalism of being able to do long form work, and and I took that responsibility seriously so you know I can remember thinking about Alan Jones oh my god would I really do a story about Alan Jones how much trouble is that going to cause but I thought no that's what I'm here for same with a few other things Uh, and uh, um, but I remember it it got to a point particularly after the Moonlight State and after the death by a thousand courts that I would genuinely wake up and think I'm going to have to give myself a rest I'm going to have to let this one go. I'm going to have to go and do a story about grey nomads or something, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and Notoriously I, I, litigious group. <laughs> and I, I, I don't blame myself for doing that, you know. I think, I think you have to you, for the sake of your soul.
0: But often, too, it's not the main target of your story that Sue's often... It's the bit player in paragraph 45 that sues. And I was saying before, um, one of my best lawsuits, I was sued in Wisconsin. And I was thrilled to find the Herald actually has 11 subscribers in (laughs) Wisconsin. And the person that sued me was a bankrupt Australian businessman who claimed that my story was affecting his ability to date. So this is what he told the court. He said, I would speak to prospective ladies and I could hear them Googling as I talked to them on the phone and I could hear the phone slam down. And his other major claim was that when he looked at himself in the mirror in the morning, he used to see a lovely face, but now his face was set in concrete. (laughs) This was his...
1: This, this, is this is what you took from him, Kate. Well, I mean,
0: exactly. <laughs> anyway, it got thrown out of court. But we had to hire lawyers in, you know, the Milwaukee County Court to represent us. And it took, like, a heap of work. I mean, it got thrown out. But even so, you think, I would never have thought that bit player would sue. I mean, I did think I suggested he took a gun to his daughter's wedding in New York. I do remember putting that <laughs> in the story. But anyway... Um, the other part of this is
1: the judiciary is incredibly hostile to journalism, um, and there are huge flaws with the Defamation Act I, and an absolute absence of proper defences, I think, and we can get to that. But, Hannah, I'm interested to understand why the courts are so hostile to journalism and why the, um, the burden imposed on journalists in defending actions is so high because it would seem... Um, judges have a predisposition away from publication?
3: I think that, I I suppose there's two things, I think, in respect of that. The first is that we live in a country in which there's no Bill of Rights, and so the the two competing rights that we're weighing up are really amorphous and vibey and very much open to the subjectivities of the particular judge. Um, And the appeal courts try to address and cure some of those things, but you know, because there is no certainty over what either right truly means, um, that I think is part of the problem. Um, another as well is just, there does just seem to be an attitude of favour toward the plaintiffs, which isn't always um, necessarily justified on, on the facts before the court. So to give a recent example, um, the, there was a an order made last week for um, a, a story that was going to be run by The Age, The Herald, and on 60 Minutes, I believe, um, the, the story to be handed over to a cosmetic surgeon and a cosmetic surgery practice who were the subjects um, of part of that story. and To be
1: handed over before publication. Before
3: publication. So they, they ran up very quickly. Everyone, you know, great song and dance. Orders were made. Hand it over. Have a look. Um, that kind of order should be made... So rarely, and in that case, you know, for not having been in the courtroom, but what is there in the judgment is is just, oh well, it seems that this is likely to be critical of the cosmetic surgery industry, and these are significant players in that industry. So have a look, and you know, that seems to me to just suggest very little consideration of those two balances that should ordinarily be struck. Um, you know, to contrast that, there was another case where similar kinds of orders were made um, to, to hand over a story before it went on air, um, and that was about uh, the, the claimant. There was Gina Reinhardt, and the the story was called House of Hancock, and that wasn't being presented as a serious investigative news piece. That was being presented as a, a docudrama for entertainment. And in the lead up to the particular episode um, being published. There was all of this press coverage where people were saying things like, "This is going to be an episode of Dynasty," um, you know, th- "This is going to paint her to be sour and vindictive." Whatever you thought of Gina Reinhart before this, it'll all change when you see this. And they also said, you know, "Oh, this is mostly based on truth, but you know, this is entertainment as well." So we've had to cut a few corners, and um, all of those things were weighed up by the court. And in the end, they said, "Okay, well, taking into account all of those comments." it does seem pretty likely that it might be false and that it's going to be defamatory of her. And so, in that situation, she was allowed access to the the show, that episode, before it was broadcast, and I don't think she ultimately pursued any claims. Um, Contrast that to what's just happened, where none of that circumstance arose. This was a serious investigative piece, which, yes, by virtue of the um, limited amount of advertising which had been done was going to be critical, of an industry, and quite ostensibly people within that industry. But it didn't really seem like there was much more than that there for the court to go off. And so, in my mind, that was a a really iffy iffy decision, and and it is under appeal, and so um, hopefully we'll see at least a little more detailed consideration of those balancing interests, uh, or those competing interests, I should say, in the appeal court.
1: And what it illustrates is just how, enthusiastic the courts are to, to punish and prevent journalism, it seems. you know The Defamation Act is not intended to just protect powerful people, but very often it just protects powerful people, and the judiciary is made up of powerful people, and they, they seem to really struggle to accept what we do as journalists as being you know, right and just. And, and Chris, I'm interested, on your take, and what it's like to actually go into the witness box and defend your journalism in front of a ordinarily hostile judiciary.
2: Well, um, I do think that that, that 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 there's not enough knowledge of the the fundamental practice, the day-to-day practice of journalism. Uh, I mean, I, I actually absolutely acknowledge that it can't be practiced mistake-free, and I think we ought to be being, be prepared to apologise m- much more swiftly than we are. In fact, it's often the lawyers who tell us not to, you know. But um, uh, I you know, I, give, I, I take my hat off to, to witnesses. I've seen witnesses in the, the Ben Robert Smith matter who are SAS soldiers, you know, who've just been shattered by the experience of having to give evidence. And as much as you know that it's not, um, it's not meant to be personal, it always feels like it's personal. It always feels like um, you're... They're, they're going to make you out to be a, a liar. Uh, um, the, the soldiers have often said that I'd, I'd rather storm a machine gun nest than spend another two or three days giving evidence. And I used to say that myself—that that, that um, I'd rather be in a, in a war zone than than in a witness box. And it's not—it's not, it's not. I mean, I, I've always felt like I'm in the, the safe harbour of truth, but it's. Truth just isn't enough. One, it doesn't always win us our, our cases. But two, it's like you're terrified of making a mistake and they'll seize on every mistake that can possibly occur. And, and I, I think that that it's also true that we're, we're really paid to be first and fast more than we're paid to be thorough and accurate. Uh, Uh, I I wish members of the judiciary would sit in a newsroom for a a day and realise just how much of a a rip-shit-and-bust industry it is that we work in and how easy it is for us to make make mistakes. Mm. Kate, do you have any thoughts about
1: what reforms are needed for defamation law in
0: Australia? And, um, you know, Hannah's been working on the committee, but I just think the American model where um, basically public figures don't... Well, they can sue, but one, they've got to prove that something is false. They've got to prove it's false. And two, they've got to prove that the journalist had malice, that they knew it was false and that they continued anyway. And I just think if plaintiffs had to prove that our stories were false would be one thing, but also... um, It's changing now, but proving that someone's actually suffered. Like, for instance, you know, Peter Dutton recently sued a refugee advocate who, you know, made a comment about um, that he was a rape apologist and then linked to a story in The Guardian that, you know, detailed, you know, provided the whole context for the tweet. I think there was something like 36 retweets. And for someone like Peter Dutton to say that this seriously harmed him, you think you're in the rough and tumble of politics and a refugee advocate saying that um, and getting up at first instance, but it was recently overturned on appeal. And, you know, I was sued by a 96-year-old man. And I don't know whether any of you remember Morgan Ryan, the My Little Mate in the Lionel Murphy affair, he sued me for suggesting he had a bad character. And, and, and also, he claimed economic loss. He's 96. Yeah, anyway. and he never worked after that, Kate. No. <laughs> well, um, he, he, did, he did actually. He didn't go ahead with it, and then he died. But, um, but you do think... And, you know, we were talking before about... Um, Steve Canane from the ABC wrote this really good book on Scientology in Australia... There was one paragraph in the book about how nurses from Scientology had exposed the Chelmsford deep sleep case. Now, those 2 there was one paragraph in an entire book, and the two doctors, um, Harry Bailey and John, I can't remember the other person's name, John Gill, Gil, They were 87 and 82. They sued him for saying that he damaged his reputation. And the judge said that it was not possible to tender the Royal Commission into the Chelmsford case, that the publishers had to prove the deep sleep case all over again. And the judge dismissed the case and they've just got an appeal. So the The doctors have just got an appeal.
1: But when you say the judge dismissed the case, the case still ran for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the
0: judge said, I wish it was in place that I could actually, first of all, determine, okay, what harm have you really suffered? But under the current law, she couldn't. So she had to do the whole case and then say, you didn't really suffer any harm because, you know, the things that were said I find were accurate. And the cost to run that case. and I'm,
3: Hannah, you might know what the appeal grounds are. I'm not sure. Uh, not off the cuff on that one. But to the point around the um, damage that people have suffered, uh, for a long time there was this presumption that if you were defamed, it was assumed that you'd suffered damage. One of the things which has changed just recently is they've brought in a serious harm threshold. So a plaintiff has to now prove that they've suffered serious harm as an element of the cause of action at the outset. And there's just been the first couple of judgments come down on that. It does have a propensity to turn into a little bit of a circus sideshow early on in the case, but where it's it's a small, it's a small potatoes compared to the, the circus of the entire case, typically, but it does offer some additional protection and an opportunity for the judges to throw out the really stupid cases early on. Um, and hopefully not just the stupid cases, but those which are, of very low actual damage. Um, and, and I hope they would apply that in situations like politicians suing, because I completely agree with what you're saying, that they should be able to cope with quite a lot. Just That's, that's just part of the job. You know? so, so hopefully we will see some improvement on that front.
1: Chris, do you have any views about legal changes that are required to make the Defamation
2: Act fairer? I think that the, the, the bar that we're supposed to climb over is is just much too high when I did the uh, the Queensland story we actually won it on a qualified privileged defense which is, as you know is very very rarely used because it is so hard to win and so therefore it became about proving public interest and demonstrating that we had acted responsibly and uh, and therefore that's that's why I had my death by a thousand courts you know um, be, because I was the central witness and and the whole story was about um, the whole argument was about whether whether I I'd, I'd behaved um, appropriately and professionally uh, so I mean I think that Hannah will have a better idea but I, I think that there's got to be somewhere be, between qualified privileged and truth where where, where we're not obliged to, 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 to prove the impossible.
1: Mm. I am gonna take questions because I'm sure there are lots of people here who'd like to ask questions. Um, there are microphones at the front if you wanted to come forward. We have uh, one question on the large screen in front of us from uh, Leone on the Gold Coast, who I presume is watching, asking us about uh, defamation as it pertains to authors distinct from journalism. And I think the question is about fictional characters and how close they can be to real life. Um, Without, you know, asking a legal opinion on this, (laughs) Anna, do you have an answer to that question?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, it comes back to that question of identification. Um, The elements of a cause of action in defamation are, first of all, there's a publication. Um, Secondly, that it identifies someone. And thirdly, that there is a defamatory meaning coming from the publication and I should say, fourthly now, serious harm. But um, the question of identifying someone where you're using a fictitious character and things, it'll always be contextual, but there is no shortage of cases where someone has not been named, and it's only by inference or only by extra knowledge of a very small number of people that that person is ultimately defamed and and able to bring a cause of action, so...
1: Christian Porter is a good example.
3: Absolutely. Obviously, at the time that story was released, it did not name him. And in his initial case, he had to argue all of these um, extraneous particulars to try and establish how it identified him. And the same goes in, in fiction um, and, and for authors where you have to think about... Um, in what circumstances would someone think this does relate to a specific individual in the real world? So it's absolutely a risk. For
1: instance, Peter Dutton is very keen to uh, pursue J.K. Rowling over the Voldemort character
3: (laughs) in one of her books.
1: Uh, But just, just... ..just on appearance.
0: Can I say, though, that there have also been lawsuits where journalists have not named the person... There was a famous one where there was a story on um a very well known building in Canberra where the roof was leaking the architect successfully sued saying everyone in Canberra knows I was the architect of that building and you're you're suggesting that I was incompetent and he won
2: it's also true that the publishing houses just don't really have much of a defamation budget uh, i mean that they simply can't, can't afford to take on these matters so they're they're very risk averse Hi. first question from over here
3: um, hi I'm um, my name's Ruby I'm a second year university student at Western Sydney uni, uni studying law and communications um, and I just wanted to ask about the Online Safety Act um, and potentially um, how how does um, in treating social media platforms as publishers how does that or if does that aid? defamation laws in Australia, like for the plaintiff, does that support? Yeah, The the question of platform liability and intermediary liability is really complex. So um, the the way the law has been working to date says that if, for example, I post something on Facebook, um, that Facebook could also be liable. And typically it will only be held liable once it knows that the defamation has occurred and leaves it up there. Um, Then there was another case which threw all of this into complete uproar where people thought that maybe you might attract liability for someone else's comments on your Facebook page um, from the moment they were published. The Online Safety Act, um, which is, in fact... uh, about defamation and not online safety. (laughs) I should say bill, because it was never enacted. Um, But what they were trying to do there was cure that um, concern that came out of the decision about who is a publisher and try and allocate that liability. For plaintiffs, in the context of social media and the big digital platforms, being able to pursue them is typically a really good option because they have the immediate capacity to, to remove the content in question, they're identifiable, Um, they're um, well-resourced, can work for and against you, Um, but typically that means they have an interest also in just making this go away. They don't have skin in the game, so to speak. Um, So in in a lot of ways, having a regime under which the the platform can become liable is a really good thing. I'm not sure that I agreed with the the way they approached it in the online safety bill, but um, yes, it is something, and it's something that's a subject of further reform at the moment, so we should see new legislation as part of the defamation act coming soon.
1: And it is a reminder of Chris's earlier point, courts just fundamentally not understanding what journalism is, but also not understanding what the major tech platforms are. And the idea of a publisher being culpable for comments posted to their Facebook page by um, some third party in an unmoderated context really fundamentally seems to suggest that the courts just don't know what Facebook is. Like, I presume the judge in that case gets his emails printed out and put on his
3: desk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) that particular case was about... um, It was brought by a young guy called Dylan Voller, and he was quite famously um, in the picture of uh, a boy in the Dondale Detention Centre with the bag over his head, which then ultimately led right through to the Royal Commission, that investigation. Um, He sued over news stories which were published on Facebook... He sued the news publishers not over the stories themselves but over comments which were posted underneath the story which said all sorts of terrible things about him. Um, And the trial judge, who looked, first of all, just at the question of are they a publisher, went a bit rogue and I think was probably in that camp of not being particularly au fait with how the youth use the media on the internet. Um, And so uh, he, he... went beyond just saying, yes, you're a publisher, which was really the only question that was before the court then, and, and went on to kind of assess the defensibility of the, def- the publisher's position, which was ultimately overturned and said to be of no effect. But he, he kind of proposed that, well, they really could exercise editorial control by using a, a complex system of, of filtering. And if you put in words like and and the, then you should be able to catch everything so you can review it before, um, but before it's released to the public which is um, not necessarily (laughs) logical, first of all, for the reason that how could you ever purport to capture everything just by using filters, and it would always be the case that people could circumvent it if they they felt very strongly. Um, But second of all, completely fails to appreciate the reason that the news publishers use social media, which is to get audience. And if you put that onus on them, the only other option they've really got is to switch comments off. And then suddenly they get downplayed in the algorithm. They lose their audience and they lose the, the ad revenue that flows from the audience and it has a massive, massive commercial impact. So that was a very troubling case for those reasons. But <laughs> I, I thought the High Court had gone
0: back and upheld the original decision. So like the, it hasn't been good for us, well, the Dylan it's, case. it's
3: interesting. I, I feel like a lot of the, the coverage of that case was a little bit misguided in that the cases have always been very widely, um, or taken a very wide approach to who is a publisher, and that's what the High Court point was. The question was always just, um, are the, the Facebook page hosts, the news publishers, are they publishers in the sense as is required for a defamation action? What wasn't dealt with in any part of the Vola case before it settled was whether the defence of innocent dissemination applied. And that's a defence that basically says if you didn't know about it and you weren't the primary publisher, then you're not liable for it. And and usually that had been applied to mean that before someone came and made a complaint to the the news publisher, the Facebook page host or to Facebook themselves, before they'd received that complaint, they weren't liable. Once they received that complaint if they didn't take the defamatory material down within a reasonable time, then after that they became liable. But what the Vola case was about was that period before notification, it was trying to extend that, but the court didn't actually um, deal with that innocent dissemination issue. Now the case is settled, so it's not really raising the risk of there being a decision about that earlier period yet. Um, but the concept of the news publishers being responsible as publishers for the comments to my mind, isn't actually vastly changing the law because we hadn't gotten to that point of, of assessing the defence. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Uh, the panel has been talking about rich, powerful people and especially politicians. And I'm wondering what the panel would think of the implementation of a federal ICAC. Would that assist in Preventing many of these matters, which are bought, if you like, by spite or in circumstances which are dubious at the at the outset.
1: And the answer question for the Queen of ICAC, <laughs> Kate McClymont.
0: Um, no, it would have very little effect at all. Uh, it, it's only that um, the, like, for instance, Ben Robert Smith, that wouldn't be covered by. Um, a federal ICAC because there has to be a link between a public servant and systemic corruption. So it would affect, um, you know, contractors, politicians. But I still think they would take legal action anyway. It wouldn't stop anyone doing anything really.
1: And Kate, you've been but, but you've been, been sued still over love matters. A ICAC. You, we would all love a federal ICAC. You've been sued over matters that have then later gone to ICAC, and there's no there's no sort of defence to you retrospectively or defence before the... No, no,
0: no. So, yes, that's that's the thing. You can you can be... Um, the things that you said in the first place can be found to have been true. I was actually sued by reporting on something from ICAC, and it was one of the Eddie Obeid, um acolytes, and it actually went to trial, and it settled halfway through me giving evidence. And as my lawyer said to me later... I can't thank you enough for mentioning Eddie Obeid before the jury at every single opportunity.
2: (laughs) But I I do sometimes think that sometimes when I see the judgments of the various anti-corruption commissions, I think, oh, actually, they're doing the work that uh, we used to do. And and initially, when you you started doing this serious investigative work and you confronted the prospect of a, a royal commission, your heart would sink because you would think, well, they're not going to call a royal commission unless they know what the outcome is. That was the standard attitude when I started out, but I, but I have to say, it, I don't think it's the attitude anymore. We've seen a lot of really effective royal commissions. We've seen some great work from judges associated with royal commissions who've, who've done this nation a power of good. So, some but it's
0: it's nearly always the journalism.
2: That starts those commissions.
0: That, that starts those commissions. So you can do a little bit, but I think people often don't understand. We don't have powers of compulsion. We can't get people's tax records. Gee, we'd love them. Um, and you, and for instance, you know, politicians who hide behind trusts. We can't get behind trusts, but ICAC and other bodies like royal commissions can. So, in some ways, they work well together. Another question here. Thank you. I know we're running out of time. I just... Um, Kate mentioned juries before, and it just um, talking about the inclination of um, the judiciary against publishers, and to what extent do you think um, uh, hearing these cases before a jury rather than a judge has the potential to um, uh, redress that balance? I know judges still decide a lot of the uh, issues that are of
2: concern, but I was just interested in any comments on that.
0: I think, Hannah, you're probably better to answer that because depending on whether it's the federal court or the Supreme Court.
3: I think it's funny. The the selection of whether to to use a jury trial um, is, again, by virtue of funny little arcane procedural rules, in the first instance, largely in the hands of the plaintiff, because if they go to the federal court rather than a, a state Supreme Court, then they typically can't get access to a jury Well, they don't want to have a jury. Exactly. That's my exact point, right? So you're seeing some of these cases which are strategically um, being taken to the federal court, perhaps because the plaintiff is thinking, well, a jury's not going to think very well of me on this (laughs) because of what I'm concerned that they might think I've done.
1: Thank you, Kate, Chris Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast... Please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.